0: Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Upnext in Commerce.
1: One of the lessons I've learned is honor the past. That's one of the failures I've learned from in my past, that basically sometimes evolution is better than tearing things apart.
2: When you're entering a new company or a new market, there are lessons to be learned from the past and opportunities to grab a hold of to propel yourself and your company forward. Paul Lanham entered a new company and industry all at once when he became the chief information and e-commerce officer at Charlotte's Web, a CBD company. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Paul details how he used his experience at companies such as Crocs, HCL, and Brookstone to help guide him as he helped grow the e-commerce business at Charlotte's Web to the point where it now represents 65% of the business. Paul explains the methods he used to help generate qualified traffic, conversions, and high retention rate. And he discusses the technology he thinks is going to make a huge impact on e commerce in the future. Enjoy this episode.
0: Up next in commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com commerce. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is Stephanie Postles, co-founder of mission.org and your host. Today, we have Paul Lanham on the show, the chief information and e-commerce officer at Charlotte's Web. Paul, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. I'm glad to have you. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've used Charlotte's Web products before. So when I saw that you were in our queue for interviews, I was like, ooh, this is going to be a good interview.
1: That's good to hear. You have some perspective then.
0: So to start, I was looking through your background and was really impressed by some of the companies that you've worked at. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to first, before talking about Charlotte's Web, kind of go through a little bit about uh, your history and then what brought you to Charlotte's Web.
1: Sure. Uh, as you just noted, I have a pretty diverse background, mostly in the retail and uh, CPG and technology industries. And you know, what's really colored my career is that I've been given a lot of opportunities, some of which I hadn't had a lot of experience in, including e-commerce when I started in its infancy in the mid-90s, when you had to build everything. You couldn't really go to the uh, corner shop and buy an e-commerce server. Mm-hmm. But um, um, I uh, basically have... Uh, Touched on virtually every aspect of e-commerce over the past uh, uh, 20-some odd years. Uh, I've been a C-level executive for about 25 years and worked for um, a diverse group of companies, uh, a variety of sizes. Some startups uh, started my own tech company, and uh, now it's Charlotte's Web, which I have to say is very much different um, in terms of uh, its makeup versus the companies I've worked for in the past.
0: Yes. And just for people to know the difference, it'd be great if you could name drop a bit. I know people hate name dropping, but I'd love to hear what were the, some of the companies, the largest ones you've worked at?
1: Sure. So
0: uh, they can compare it to Charlotte's Web.
1: Uh, I worked for what was a startup, Crocs. I think people will recognize uh, the infamous shoe company yep. uh, that is just located down the street from where I work. I've worked for um Jones Apparel Group, which is a mega apparel conglomerate that owns companies like Barneys, New York, uh, Jones, New York, uh, Polo Jeans, et cetera, uh, in the apparel industry. I started um, uh, a tech company that eventually became a subsidiary of HCL Technologies, which is a global tech firm based in India. So, uh, and Brookstone, uh, which is the gadget shop uh, competing with Sharper Image, uh, again, near its embassy as well. So, uh, a diverse group of experiences.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So, with some of these companies you've worked at, previously, are there a lot of lessons that you were able to bring to Charlotte's Web or is it just such a different piece that you kind of had to just start over and have like a new, completely new hat on?
1: Well, um, you know, basically if, if you've been uh, a C-level executive for a number of years, you have some successes and you have some failures and hopefully you learn from the failures. And I've had a few implemented virtually uh, every kind of system you can imagine, uh, been on the business side from an e-commerce perspective and uh, learned a lot of uh, different uh, things that I've been able to bring to Charlotte's Web. And back to the diversity of my career, uh, one thing I can note, I've pr- probably been in just about every function that you can imagine from finance to marketing, to uh, sales, to uh, e-commerce, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that brings somewhat of a unique uh, perspective to a couple of things like Charlotte's Web, where I frankly have a lot of empathy for my peers and other departments because I've done a lot of their jobs.
0: Yeah, that is so important. I've worked at previous companies where someone does not understand. I worked in finance back in the day mm-hmm. and people do not understand the complexity or, you know, yes. why there's certain procedures set up. And you can definitely mm-hmm. see tension between certain groups if, you know, they've never worked in that team before. So that's key, I think.
1: Absolutely. And financial people can be fun. Most people don't know that.
0: <laughs> they can be. Just uh, like me. I'm fun. You're fun, Paul. There you go. <laughs> So I'd love to hear, or I'd love for you to explain what is Charlotte's Web and maybe even starting with the story behind it, like behind the name.
1: Sure. Um, Charlotte Web uh, is a CBD company uh, that was founded by the seven Stanley brothers. And that's a, that's a wonderful story in and of itself, in that they grew up in the cannabis industry. But the, the company's namesake, Charlotte uh, Figi, uh, who many people may remember from the Sanjay Gupta um, CNN specials from years back, and most recently, illustrating um, how there was this trajectory of various peoples and and things to help a little child basically survive. So our namesake, Charlotte, uh, really is like our guiding star, North Star, in the context of our mission, which is to help people uh, through uh, natural products uh, that Charlotte Webb produces. So it's a young industry, it's a young company where uh, we are a market leader, obviously we are commercial, but we're always grounded uh, by our original mission and we still do help quite a few people to where our product is very essential like the Charlottes of the world. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I was looking at the I Am Charlotte video on your website and it definitely gave me goosebumps. Um, When did you guys create that campaign?
1: Well, it's basically been uh, the past year. And the point is, with her passing, it really shook us all to our core because, frankly, it was it was probably one of the core reasons that most of us joined the company. Uh, I, I was fortunate to be able to meet Charlotte and her mother, Paige, a couple of times. Uh, but uh, many people in the company, and obviously the Stanley brothers, basically grew up in this company um, attached to Charlotte's story. So the I Am Charlotte campaign is currently just obviously a, a testimony and our take on how beloved she is and and still is.
0: Yeah, I love that. So the CBD industry, as you mentioned, it is kind of a new-ish industry. I mean, when you're in California, it seems like, oh, it's been around forever. But when you go to other states or like back to my hometown, Mm -hmm. people still kind of have like, you know, they either don't know what it is or, uh, yeah, are just very unclear about what it is or have different preconceived notions, you can say. Mm -hmm. So how do you all think about um, kind of educating the public or new buyers who come, you know, to your site for the first time?
1: Certainly. Well, uh, to your point, uh, about 15, actually about 15% of households have had some experience uh, with CBD um, in the United States. Still, because it's such an emerging industry, uh, word of mouth is still very important. Uh, typically, uh, people first get exposed to CBD by, by uh, a relative or a friend or somebody mentioning it that it, it helped them. And when they go to search for it, we basically are actually a leader at Charlotte's Web because uh, we rank very high uh, on the first page with what is CBD. And to that point, we spend a good deal of time on our site through blog entries and various educational uh, videos that uh, we put out to educate our customer on the difference, for example, between hemp and uh, uh, cannabis. What is the efficacy of CBD Uh, and various in-depth, I guess, uh, videos to illustrate uh, the the depth of uh, what they uh, could know about CBD. So it it very much is still uh, an educational educational process, as you mentioned, to uh, evangelize the use of CBD.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. How did you all become a market leader? Like, I know you were kind not first, but you definitely were some of the early leaders or even starting up in this industry. But like, how did you go about making sure that people kind of had your name as the household name when it came to CBD?
1: Sure. Uh, they were among the first. And the, the brand story between the Stanley Brothers and Charlotte really resonated. It was made for this industry. And the mission that the Stanley Brothers uh, inculcated into the company, and we still have, in terms of evangelizing the product uh, and natural products uh, to the world uh, to help people, uh, I think resonate with people. When you talk about, for example, our end-to-end integration from seed uh, to a shelf, uh, our quality, etc. All those things kind of uh, are confluence in terms of uh, being perceived as a quality brand and a premium brand uh, to a consumer. Um, And there are a lot of smart business decisions along the way, frankly, in terms of becoming that market leader.
0: What kind of smart business decisions? Now you've piqued my interest.
1: Oh, okay. For example, uh, going really strong in e-commerce initially, in that the nature of the industry is that there's been a slower adoption Um, in the major retailers because uh, hemp, frankly, from a federal perspective, wasn't quite legal until a couple of years ago, based on the Farm Act. You know, there's some reticence in terms of uh, conservative retailers to carry the product. So they were very smart uh, in not necessarily going the mom and pop route, even though we have a big natural store uh, population um, on the retail side, but uh, going very strong with e-commerce and hiring the right people right out of the bat. Um, a couple few years ago to uh, basically push commercial side of this. E-commerce right now represents about 65% of our business as it was in the first quarter. And that's somewhat of a higher percentage than many of our competitors.
0: What do you think is attributed to that higher percentage?
1: Being first out of the gate, uh, being very yeah. professional about it. But the primary drivers, uh, there are a couple, uh, back to the brand story that really resonated was beautifully presented on the site through media. Uh, And secondarily, the quality that we bring to the table that uh, we try to communicate to other consumers from that seed to shelf uh, continuum, we test the product 20 times. We track each individual bottle or tincture or the like back to a specific lot in seeds. And we could document uh, virtually anything anyone needs to know about that particular product. So, Particularly in this industry where you have uh, an influx of competitors, uh, some of which, frankly, uh, are not quite as sophisticated in the context of testing and their branding, you can really stand out uh, by basically uh, taking care of those issues.
0: Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. That is how yes. I found you guys in the early days, was because quality to me is like the biggest factor when it comes to CBD. And is also something that a lot of people worried about early on because you, you know, yes. do hear horror stories. And it felt good going to a company knowing like, oh, yeah, they've already got everything figured out. They've got the dosing you know, down to a T. They've got like it's yes. non-GMO. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's so important with an industry like this. Absolutely. So the one thing I was thinking about was consumer journeys. Like everyone is coming to your website, maybe at a different place, like we were mentioning before, like some people are brand new where they've maybe never even heard of it, where education's yes. key. Some people have heard about it. Um, mm-hmm. You've got the people who may be hiding their browsers when they're looking for it. Or the people mm-hmm. like me, it's like, oh, yeah, this is like an obvious thing that can help you. Sure. How do you personalize your either your e-commerce experience or your marketing efforts to kind of go after all those people and meet them where they are?
1: Well, that's a good question, because when I mentioned sophisticated, we have invested in tools that enable us to personalize that journey. So, for example, back to my comment on what is CBD. Uh, If somebody enters uh, that as a search term and they have to click on our link, we will take them initially to the educational materials and we'll kind of guide them in the process from the the, uh, e-commerce perspective of walking them through that journey and hopefully they purchase. Uh, And we do that in the context of segmenting our email channel. We have a variety of channels and we handle each one differently. Um, Our affiliate channel, for example, is very strong in terms of the partners we deal with like a healthline.com which yet again is another educational component in that uh, we're very strong with them. So depending on the channel, depending on the entry point of our consumer, we will treat them differently in the context of where we land them on the website, what we offer to to them in the context of their journey through the website, and uh, what promotional activity we engage with them in.
0: Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. When it comes to affiliate programs... How did you all think about setting that up and is that still a big part of your strategy or did you kind of pull back on that once you started becoming more of like a household name?
1: Uh, It's still and will be a very big part of our strategy uh, in that uh, penetration of CBD uh, from a searcher perspective is still relatively low compared to what I've experienced in the past so that uh, we're still in an emerging phase where we need to use and leverage every channel we can. So um, as strong as our our e-commerce business is, which happens to be, frankly, e-commerce alone at uh, Charlotte's Web is a market leader in revenue compared to every other CBD company just alone. So it kind of tells you the scale of our business. But the the Healthline.com affiliate uh, is very important to us in that it is the number one rated uh, medical advice site, I believe, if I looked at the statistics uh, recently. Every entry point is different for every consumer and we need to leverage all those different entry points. We can't, for example, rely solely on organic search as an example, not that we would, but we need to basically go through every venue.
0: Got it. What does it look like setting up a partnership like that? Because I think that is really important, kind of finding someone who has a good reputation that a lot of people trust, but what did that look like setting that partnership up and making it so both sides feel like it's a win-win?
1: Well, to your point, it's important to vet the partner, because obviously you don't want to be presented on a site that doesn't quite uh, meet your value set or your brand image. So we're, we're fairly choosy in terms of the affiliate partners that uh, we um, work with. Obviously, uh, in some cases, it's, uh, it's a longer negotiation in that, uh, you know, obviously we want to do it on advantageous terms in terms of the share or the, uh, basically we don't um, uh, cast a wide swath in the context of the affiliate partners we deal with. We're very selective.
0: Got it. So the one thing that I was wondering earlier when you were mentioning failures and like having, I mean, you of course have like a huge backlog of experience at other companies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did your first 90 days look like coming in uh, to Charlotte's web? And like, what big things did you change from the start based on maybe past failures or successes that you've had at prior companies?
1: Well, like, like entries in the most companies it was, it was a rush. My story, this is pre-COVID times, obviously. Uh, I talked on the phone with a board member and uh, my boss, the CEO. On a Friday, I flew over the weekend, got there on Monday. I took the job outside unseen on, after a phone call. Oh, wow. Uh, I was so enamored of it. I've never done that before.
0: That's great. And Dini has never
1: hired anybody like that before. Uh, it just went so well. And mm-hmm. I showed up on Monday, and I didn't leave for 90 days. Much to the consternation of my significant other uh, in Boston. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we worked it out, but uh, it was just a rush of understanding the industry in depth, doing triage in the context of it was still a startup mentality, triage in the context of building a business intelligence stack, revamping the e-commerce organization, planning the next iterations and improvements, setting up for the holiday season, for example. Uh, you know when I joined uh, literally the week after I joined, we kicked off a new platform upgrade uh, that we only had a couple of months to do prior to holiday. So it, it was, it was a lot of long days.
0: Mm-hmm. Was that something that you feel like you could step into? Cause I'm sure you've done many re yeah. experiences before.
1: Yeah, there is some muscle memory. And back to my point, you, you know, you always want to learn from your failures and not do them again, or at least understand the context and uh, admit them. You know, basically one of those uh, issues is that one has to listen very carefully. You know, I, I, Parachuted into a company that was going a thousand miles an hour. And one of the lessons I've learned in the past is honor the past, because there was a great deal of work and a lot of great work done um, that I took the the attitude of evolving and adding to as opposed to tearing apart, which you know, many CLA executives take that as their mandate. I've never really done that. And that's one of the failures I've learned from in my past that basically sometimes evolution is better than tearing things apart.
0: Yep. Yeah, I love that. That's a good quote too. Yes. So I'm sure another thing that you kind of had to change your thinking on would be how you track the success of a business or the e-commerce site. What kind of metrics did you maybe look at at prior companies where you're like, this is our set of metrics that always made sense versus what do you look at now at Charlotte's Web?
1: Well, there are quite a few. If you you know the e-commerce business, uh, there are probably 20 things that you look on a daily basis. That's my routine in the morning. I get up and uh, I look at basically all the metrics. But what's what's important here, more so that perhaps it's always in the top three, conversion, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, on non non-bounce traffic. It's significant here because your engagement with the new customer may be fleeting because of the nature industry, the the curiosity about CBD, people not knowing about it. And I actually had to look at that statistic or those statistics several times because they didn't believe them. Um, and that's a testament to the people and the staff that were here, in that uh, whether it's educating the consumer uh, or the customer experience on the site or customer care on the back end, we, we have a high percentage of sales that um, convert. So, uh, That probably is a much more important stat that I've paid attention to in the past. It's always been in the top three or four. Retention of consumers, again, in this sort of industry, because of the fleeting interaction with their customers, we have a very strong subscription program that is very important to us, which are typically customers who deem the product to be essential to their well-being. So we put a good deal of emphasis into that, as well as retaining customers and again, without divulging the statistic, it's much higher than I've experienced in my past 20-plus year years of experience in e-commerce.
0: What do you think uh, is making it so high? Like, how are you all retaining customers so well or encouraging people to subscribe?
1: Well, um, it's high because I guess, in a way, our traffic is more qualified than, again, I've experienced in the past. When they come through the site and they've been educated, there's a slightly higher degree of propensity to buy. Uh, so that's a factor. Plus, some of our tools really facilitate the conversion in that, uh, not that they we're pushy, but we don't let go in the context of, okay, this isn't right for you, maybe this, or how about this promotion, or have you rethought this, you know, through the customer journey in the site. And, you know, basically, uh, there's a predisposition to buy, basically, uh, once they get to our site.
0: Is there any initiatives that you've implemented when it comes to, like you said, you Sometimes you don't let go and you make sure to keep reminding them or showing them new products or new ideas. Like, is there anything that you've implemented recently around like those kind of initiatives that have increased conversions or increased like subscription rates or anything or anything that you've done where you're like, that was a big flop? Don't try that.
1: Well, yeah, uh, again, getting much more sophisticated. I don't think anybody else has implemented the suite of what I call campaign tools and analytical tools. Typically, people use the standard uh, GA or, you know, Google tools, and we've gone past that in utilizing tools that I've used in much bigger companies without naming the company. So we can have a high degree of personalization in terms of how we treat our customers as they kind of navigate through our site, a much higher capability in terms of test and react, and basically inculating those scenarios uh, and situations into our campaigns, eventually uh, down to the individual level. We've implemented those over the past three or four months. The company is still, my staff is still learning some of the aspects of those tools. And on top of that, from an analytics standpoint, which is a little unusual in the industry, we dived in with both feet from an artificial intelligence perspective. Because, you know, I joke with my staff and they read too rapidly with me that my experience doesn't always mean anything. In that I think I know everything about my customer and I'm confounded constantly in terms of why I was wrong on that. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to the data. And what artificial intelligence does, for example, is that it makes those deep correlations that none of us would have thought of, I would have never thought of with my 20 plus years of experience of how our customers actually interact with our site or what are they thinking in the context of their purchase journey. So when you put all those things together from a capability perspective, I love it in terms of being data driven in terms of understanding our consumer at a deeper and deeper level and being able to provide the best experience and best service that we can on an ongoing basis.
0: Got it. That makes sense. So when you're implementing AI, first, can I ask, what platform are you using for that? And what kind of surprises have you found when you implemented AI? Like what what were the consumers doing that you would never have guessed before?
1: Well, it's a third-party app. It's a bunch of uh, data scientists uh, who basically... Uh, provide the service for us, uh, their conduit for the massive amount of data that we have. And to your question of surprises or those correlations, what people have affinities for um, in terms of, say, an ad-on purchase that we would never think of? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what prompts them um, to basically make that leap uh, to make the purchase in the context of their journey through the site, some of which are counterintuitive to some of our experience? particularly for a certain segment uh, of our consumer base. So it's just some of those interesting nuggets of information. And the hard part of it is there's so so many correlations that we have to rank them. And, you know, we basically test each correlation over a period of time to uh, vet out uh, the action. And our challenge at this point is basically getting into a much more test uh, and react cycle um, on these correlations.
0: That's really interesting. Yes. so if you were to implement AI all over again mm-hmm. or you had someone you know who has, does not have that on their site right now, mm-hmm. what would you do maybe differently? Or if you were like, we could go back and maybe I would you know change the way we did this or think about yeah. it differently when implementing it. What are some um, some advice around that?
1: Well, what slowed us down was the notion of producing what I call hypotheses based on our prior knowledge. And that tends to put you into silos of information and doesn't quite give you the breadth of correlations that AI can do for you. Again, it was all of my bias that, hey, you know, I I think I really know um, this aspect, the consumer behavior, and I'm really interested in terms of their conversion activity when they do X or when they do Y. And I wouldn't be so structured in those hypotheses going into it and probably a little more open-minded in the context of, looking at the correlations in a much different, broader way.
0: I love that. That's such a good reminder about the kind of biases you bring when looking at data or your consumers Mm -hmm. and why all that should be scrapped from the beginning and just let the technology work for you.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So in your industry, I'm sure you probably get a lot of questions around this, but I'm thinking about all the regulations you have to deal with, especially on like a state level. And when it comes to having e-commerce be such a large part of your business, What does that look like behind the scenes when it comes to shipping or selling in certain states?
1: Well, uh, it's mostly an impediment from a retailer, particularly a major retailer perspective, because to your point, there's a hodgepodge of regulation um, in the states. Mm -hmm. Even though hemp with a 0.3% THC, less than 3% is federally allowed, depending on the nuances of what is in California or Florida, et cetera, retailers may be averse to getting into ingestibles as opposed to topicals. So, you know, back to our point, one of the reasons why we're industry leaders, we've invested heavily in internal and external uh, uh, lobbyists uh, that can guide different parties and factions, whether it be Congress at the federal level or legislatures at the state level or associations to evangelize uh, the notion of CBD. And one thing that people miss the point on, we welcome more uh, defined regulation from the FDA because we feel that we're heads and shoulders above most of our competitors in the context of how we test, how safe our product is, how we document it, and the like. So it's an ongoing journey that hopefully uh, more clarity will emerge at both the state and federal level, whether it's with the FDA or with various state legislatures, uh, to make the retail sales of CBD uh, more palatable. Um, We do ship to all states uh, from um, an e-commerce perspective.
0: Okay. Yeah, I like that idea around encouraging the FDA to look into it and like implement regulations because you're like, my product is so good. <laughs> like we should have, you know, the other products regulated and be held to a high standard as well, because that is what can maybe hurt the industry as a whole is having people making subpar products that aren't as high quality as, you know, Charlotte's web.
1: Yes. And it's, it's kind of axiomatic that, you know, major business publications have basically stated in lengthy articles that CBD is here to stay. You know, it's a multi billion dollar business uh, growing at uh, a rapid rate. And uh, it's, frankly, grown so fast and it's a new industry that uh, regulations haven't quite caught up with it.
0: So I was reading a bit about demand surges, especially during the pandemic right now. I think Mm -hmm. maybe it was your CEO who was mentioning, like, oh, we had a surge in demand for two weeks and then, you know, people kind of pulled back for a little bit. And I was wondering how you guys are keeping up um, your inventory levels, like how you manage that. And then if you're changing anything, going forward after seeing these surges of hopefully Mm -hmm. consumers Mm -hmm. that are going to stick around going forward?
1: Well, um, we've been fairly gratified in continuing to serve our customer because the majority of the customers consider our product to be essential for their well-being, whether it's the type of tincture they use or the ointment or the like. So uh, it's been relatively stable for us. Okay. Now, from an inventory perspective, as a growing company, our, our processes have become more sophisticated. And over the past year, we've implemented uh, an SNLP process or production planning process that I'm more familiar with in my CPG background to really dial into um, marrying strategic plans to budgets to demand forecasts down to the SKU level and doing a relatively sophisticated job of planning uh, product demand. Now, the flip side of that, this, this industry is so volatile in the context of demand in general because... You know, retailers, are, are some are still averse to taking the product. So it's hard to predict uh, the demand in that context. So uh, we would place a little more emphasis on safety stock and um, agility in the context of the co-manufacturers we deal with and the like.
0: Got it. What are some of the best practices you set up when it comes to um, setting up that uh, forecasting process? Because I know you've had, a lot, like you mentioned, a lot of experience with that. Like, what did you bring to Charlotte's Web that maybe they weren't doing before?
1: Well, um, they had started it, but I amplified a, a very, from an e commerce perspective, a rigorous skewed demand process that is three dimensional and that uh, it adds up from top to bottom. And a extremely rigorous analytical process of continually revising those forecasts, of taking into account promotional cadence, taking into account day to day iterations of different campaigns. So it's it's a fairly in depth forecasting process in, in e commerce, so that our accuracy is, is much higher. It's in the ninety percentile, uh, you know, by skew in terms of our monthly demand, for example. So one of the things I've learned in my past is that sometimes you have to take a leap of faith on a particular product because you don't know how high you can go. Uh, on the other hand, uh, that's what safety stock is for.
0: Got it. How- What does that look like when it comes to thinking of new products? Like how do you influence your decision behind that? Like you're mentioning behind like the sales channels and the marketing channels that help you influence your ideas or thoughts behind it. Like what does that look like when it comes to new products?
1: We do um, have outside data and, you know, with the caveat that it's such a rapidly growing industry that that tends to change over time. Brightfield is obviously one of the standard firms we use in the context of a, a longer term view in terms of product categories and growth in certain segments and the like, and we use that as a baseline. Obviously, we use uh, our trend and you know, uh, my counterpart on the retail side and myself, we're you know, basically experienced marketers and salespeople and that we have our own opinions in terms of uh, how we correlate um, our thoughts on uh, category growth versus what we're seeing in external data, for, for example, like uh, Build. So we listen very closely to our consumer in terms, in, in terms of uh, what categories we're pushing.
0: I was just going to say, I'm sure you guys get a lot of customer feedback of like what people want or what they're looking for. Yes. How do you grab all that data and put it in a meaningful way? Because I mean, you probably know best that a lot of times consumers might ask for something and then not actually buy it or not really want it.
1: This is true. Uh, they, they certainly vote with their dollars. But on the other hand, uh, we have a pretty good customer care department that is is in my pyramid where, um, you know, I, I've managed those sorts of departments in the past, but this is an interesting one uh, the group of uh, individuals that uh, the empathy, because of the nature of the product and the stories they hear and the people they try to help, the empathy they exhibit in terms of comments from customers is just outstanding. So it's not only commercial, but to the extent that's practical based on the information they have, they are advisors to the customers that call in, and we have a high volume. Of calls that come in, not necessarily about order status or standard things, but really uh, what should I do? Uh, Mm -hmm. What about this product? The other aspect is we have a fairly rich uh, library of customer reviews and the technology we use enables us to slice and dice uh, some of the categories of the customer reviews and try to get to the gist of what's working versus not, whether it's uh, from a product efficacy perspective, perhaps uh, a defect of some sort. You know the dropper may not work exactly the way we would want it to, and the like, so we have multiple sources of information of customer contact,
0: I think that's so key to be able to call in and actually talk to someone like that's the perfect way to develop trust is by having someone that you can actually get on the phone with and be like, "Okay, I don't know what to do now. Like tell me exactly what I should be doing, or same with like reviews, being able to see someone who sounds like me reviewing the product uh, just seems like a great way to develop trust all around
1: oh oh, absolutely and You know, from a hiring perspective, uh, you know, I I have lunch, uh, a virtual lunch nowadays with every associate in my group at some point. Uh, Today, I just, prior to this meeting, I had lunch with uh, three of our associates just to kind of get a feeling of that. When it comes to our customer care associates, I've never met such a group of people that are truly empathetic to where... You know, they hear a story and they're crying on the phone with with the consumer. They're doing everything. They have a a wide latitude of actions they can take to help our customers, more so than I've had in the past in much larger companies. But uh, they they really have the right mindset, I think, as opposed to working in a call center.
0: Yep. Oh, yeah. That's so key and so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to shift a little bit into more of a marketing mindset, I want to hear... A bit about how you guys are investing in different digital channels like what's working and what's not
1: sure um just the overview is that you may have seen our trust the earth campaign which i loved Mm -hmm. we started last fall that kind of instills uh what our brand uh messaging is and uh basically uh, a lot of our marketing efforts go to that because again we're emerging industry we're uh, maintaining our market lead we want to convey a certain image and just a random stat uh, based on our efforts year to date, we have over four and a half billion impressions from the various things we've done versus I think our closest competitor from the stats that I've seen were about two billion and it dropped rapidly. So mm-hmm. our marketing and our digital efforts from a broad perspective are very effective. And that shows in the context of where we are in organic search or educating our consumer, a long ways to go. From a digital perspective, uh, obviously we're active in, you know, every social media component and uh, we're, we're very assertive in terms of educating our consumer through that channel, conveying our brand message. The industry is in a place right now. There are some restrictions in terms of how aggressively you can market CBD on social media, like a Facebook, for example, or Twitter, but that's not a real problem for me right now because for me, those uh, we want to activate understanding and education uh, in our brand story at this stage of our growth in the social media channels. So, a lot of our digital, aside from our paid media, uh, which we're very good at, I believe. You know, a lot of our digital is focused on building our brand.
0: How are you thinking about expanding into other markets? I think I saw that you were looking at going into a few other countries. Like, how are you guys exploring that right now?
1: Well, uh, we're basically putting our markers out there. Uh, We we have a staff of people who are very experienced internationally. I have a good deal of international experience as well from an e-commerce perspective and retail. But, you know, one of the constraints still is the regulatory environment in that we won't sell in any country that obviously it's not allowed. Uh, And there aren't too many countries that actually allow it. So, you know, we're basically putting the building blocks in place if in case uh, that would be our strategy to understand what the international market would mean to us, but it's still evolving because it's basically uh, not allowed from a regulatory standpoint in quite a few countries.
0: Got it. So now that we're kind of predicting your future a little bit, I'm wondering uh, what kind of e-commerce trends are you excited about or preparing for right now?
1: Well, in general, like I have for a number of years, it's the technology keeping keeping up with my visions of personalization. In the perfect world, I'm interacting real time with an individual consumer in the context of whether educating them or guiding their journey and the like. And the technology is starting to catch up with that capability, even at a company of our scale. So that's the trend that has been there for a little while, but the promise has been there, but the the reality is starting to catch up. The other I mentioned is using deep technology to, um, to a point you know, within certain boundaries to understand our customers' behavior and needs and wants Um, Mm -hmm. and applying, point number one, the personalization to that.
0: That makes sense. Is there any new tech that you're experimenting with right now that you guys are loving?
1: Well, um, you know, I've experimented with in the past uh, in terms of uh, client-side speed of devices. You you know all the tropes about uh, how conversion is impacted by site speed and page load and all those different things. What I've been enamored of in the past couple of years is utilizing technology to tailor the experience on whatever device a consumer has. You know, there's somebody out there still on dial-up, if that still exists, with uh, a browser, right? And it doesn't matter how how efficient your site is or your servers or the like. You have to tailor the experience, strip down the the page load, the, the content, rejigger the JavaScript on the fly. Uh, depending on that individual's device, because as far as they're concerned, you know they may have an iPhone five that hasn't been updated in five years, but they still don't like the site experience
0: yep, yeah, I completely agree that's really important too, because I think a lot of people assume that users mm-hmm. are always on the newest and the latest and greatest let's see we we're doing a study on I think Google Maps users in mm-hmm. India, and the majority of them were on like such outdated versions that they were never seeing like updated streets or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, an update at all in maybe like a year or two. And I think it's just a good reminder that a lot of people are on older versions of things, not just in other countries, but here too. Like you said, some people still use dial-up. So we have a quick lightning round coming up. Before that, um, I wanted to ask you one last question because I love your excitement towards the company and your energy behind it. And I wanted to hear, what does the best day in the office look like for you?
1: It's when uh, I'm in the thick of it. I'm a great delegator, I believe, and I think uh, the people who work with and for me would say so. But I'm most happy when I'm in the thick of it, not being Mr. Executive, and my people interacting with like I'm a peer to some degree in terms of coming up with ideas, debating certain concepts, making things happen. You know, it's still enough, a small enough company where many people have been jack-of-all-trades, and that's where I've shined in my past. Okay, rolling the sleeves up and figuring it out and having to learn things. Um, many of my jobs have reflected that. So that's when I'm happiest, when I'm learning something new. I'm, I think I'm, I've been told I'm really, really curious to a fault. I ask too many questions sometimes. Um, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I guess so. But uh, that's what jazzes me, being, being the thick of things, making things happen. Now, having said that, you know, as a C-level executive, you have certain prerogatives and responsibilities to uh, create a conducive environment for your people to work in, to make them feel trusted, to stretch them to the extent of their capabilities, giving them a vision. On the other hand, I've always been a believer of an executive, you know, being able to walk the talk, having done something, uh, being able to do it without actually doing it that lends a certain bit amount of credibility in your interaction with your staff. So I think that's very important. And back to your point, that's what makes me happy as it's just being the thick of it.
0: Yep. Yeah. I completely agree. I like that idea. And I heard a ratio or it was a metric that a, an executive used called a say do ratio. And it was how yes. much do you do what you say you're going to do? And that's like how he gained trust with like a new company he was joining was he actually tracked it.
1: Well, you know, in a small company, I think, my first interaction with um, an associate at CW is riding up the elevator uh, that Monday. They had heard of me and they asked my name and they heard that I was a tech guy. I was you know, really e-commerce business guy and tech guy. And they asked me about um, an email problem uh, they were having. So, A personal spent,
0: or a company one? <laughs> a company one, yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: uh, I can't quite get this to do this on me. It was a, a sales uh, executive or sales manager that we had she uh, asked me a question, not knowing exactly what I did. So I spent a half hour tracking it down and getting back to her. And uh, later when she learned, oh, you're in charge of e-commerce and tech and all that stuff. So to me, it's in a, in a small company like ours, you, you have to be personal. You have to be willing to help anybody with anything and follow up on it and get it done uh, as opposed to, um, always delegating and there's a balance obviously in terms of the the work balance but you have to show that direct interest in everybody's issue and what they're doing
0: yeah i love that it's such a good mindset to be in like you said especially coming from a larger company where employees Mm -hmm. might be like oh this guy is going to just delegate everything like showing them like you're willing to get your hands dirty and help them with their needs and stuff yeah so so uh, crucial all right So next we have the lightning round brought to you by our friends at Salesforce commerce cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to ask Paul or to answer. Are you ready? Okay.
1: Lightning round. It is. I'm ready.
0: Roll up your sleeves. Get ready. All right. They're already rolled (laughs) up. I'll start with an easy one. Uh, What's up next on your Netflix or Hulu queue? What are you watching these days?
1: Oh, on my Netflix queue. um, Let's see. Geez, I don't watch a lot of TV, so you're going to stump me. I have 30 seconds left. I'm mostly about historical dramas. Uh, I've always wanted to watch The Crown, which everybody's watched. So that's probably next on my queue.
0: Cool. I haven't watched that yet. You'll have to let me know how it oh, is. There you go. All right. What's up next on your travel destinations when you can travel again?
1: Wow. When I could travel again, um, I'd like to go back to Tokyo. I, I've traveled oh. so much in my career personally. Um, at one point, I spent about 50% of my time overseas. Oh my gosh! Uh, but um, uh, Tokyo, calls I was born, I, I was born in Tokyo, and um, uh, oh, cool. Japanese American descent. So um, when I traveled, I was always able to get there and see my cousins like three or four times a year. But it's been a while. That'd be my first place.
0: Hmm. That is a good one. I love Japan. What app or piece of tech are you most enjoying right now?
1: Hmm, I'm most enjoying. This is an odd app um, is a password saver. I, you know, I won't say the name of it, but I've been searching for the perfect one because I'm all about convenience and security and all those things at the same time. So it's an odd choice, but I found the perfect password saver.
0: Yeah. That is actually a very good piece of tech. We recently implemented that at the company not too long ago. And I was like, wow, this saves a lot of time. Who knew?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Get rid of the sticky notes.
0: Yep. All right, if you were to create a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be?
1: My first guest, I'm thinking big. Go for it. Uh, because I'm thinking really, really big because I, I'm enamored of her career. Um, I was actually at her first rally, Elizabeth Warren. That tells you a little bit about politics. No, no offense, but uh, yeah. um, I, I was still in Boston. I went to her first rally. And I was just enamored. I've always been enamored of her. And uh, notwithstanding what happens in the near future, she I just—I would just be fascinated to talk to her about her career and how she made that mid-career shift and, uh, and to hear her latest plan.
0: Oh, that's cool. So would it be politics-focused or more human-centric on, like, More human-centric about-
1: with a tinge of politics, because I, I am interested in politics. But Elizabeth Warren oh. would be
0: it. We could get her on the show. I would make that happen for you. You would make that happen? Oh, that'd yeah. be so cool. I could do it. Elizabeth, call us. We're ready for you.
1: Absolutely. I remember I actually seen her a few times uh, in the crowd, obviously. Um, the last time was at a protest at the Boston Common, and she was quite compelling in her speech.
0: Oh, that's great. I will have to see if I can find that online.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: The last hard one, which you've kind of already answered this, but uh, I'll throw it anyways at your way. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year?
1: I think the biggest impact is the turmoil going around the big guys whether it's facebook uh google uh, to some degree amazon you know what is the regulatory landscape what is the uh, antitrust landscape how will they evolve uh how monolithic will it be i think uh in my i actually think about that quite often in terms of how do we interact with them you know do businesses Um, make the leap into Amazon as a third party do? How do the algorithms evolve from a Google perspective? How does privacy work? So, that really weighs on me in the context of thinking through um, how do those outside forces that are so monolithic in the tech industry impact e-commerce?
0: Oh, that's a big, juicy one. We'll have to have a whole other episode just to talk about your thoughts on that.
1: Right, right.
0: Well, Paul, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Um, Like I said, I use Charlotte's Web. I've been around it for a while and I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Where can people find out more about you and Charlotte's Web?
1: Well, um, obviously our our website, charlottesweb.com. And um, I have a pretty fulsome LinkedIn profile that shows you how uh, haphazard my career has been, but it's been a fun ride.
0: Yep, that's where I found out all about you. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Um, We'll have to have you back for round two in the
2: future. It's been great.
1: Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
2: Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.